0: Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth." He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the Present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? The word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Good morning. My name is Damian, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at New City, and I get the opportunity to preach in our series on 1 Corinthians this morning. And Corinthians, uh, the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, is a very relevant letter for us to read in many ways. In our passage today, we see that Paul and Apollos, leaders in the Corinthian church, are being evaluated. They're being evaluated uh, by the congregation Using the evaluative method that the Corinthians would use for evaluating any public figure. And as this is happening, Paul, particularly, is not measuring up to what the Corinthians would want him to be. He doesn't quite fit the role they have for him. And for others, Apollos doesn't quite fit the role they have for him. And so they're choosing which leader they want to attach themselves to, which church leader they want to attach themselves to for what reason? For status. It makes them look better. How many of you have heard someone say uh, a church that they went to, uh, they they said, I go to this church and the person they're talking to blank stare and then they mention the pastor's name. And oh, that's the church you go to. That's what was happening here. And Paul says, there's no room for that. And he's going to explain to them why there's no room for that. I think as we have heard the passage and as we walk through, you'll see there's tension between the Corinthians and Paul at this point. And I think that we shouldn't go any further without me saying the issue is not evaluation. I mean, we all evaluate. We are evaluators, aren't we? We evaluate movies. We evaluate books. We evaluate restaurants. But maybe most of all, we evaluate others and we evaluate ourselves constantly moment by moment, almost unconsciously, subconsciously. Sometimes it it comes up and it, it expresses itself as anxiety. You think, do I measure up? Am I what I need to be in this moment? Am I being the person that is valuable, that is worthy of esteem here? I think the point is not evaluation. The point is the wrong way of evaluating. I think it's very easy to evaluate others and ourselves in a way that's harsh, and in a way that's overwhelming. How how many times do we compliment other people comparatively? Why do we do that? I mean, it's almost like the highest form of compliment is to say that person is smarter than, instead of saying that person is so valuable to me because of how they're thoughtful. Do you see the difference to what I'm saying? We almost, it's embedded in so many places in our culture, a comparative and evaluative recognition of others. I think I see this in parents and children in sports. When I was in high school, there were a couple of athletes who were truly outstanding. The problem was, is that their parents knew that they were truly outstanding and needed them to be truly outstanding. And so they were so critical of them. The way they evaluated them was so overbearing that by the time we were juniors in high school, both of these athletes, one female, one male, said, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with this sport. I'm out. They both had give it signed letters of intent to division one schools. So they were successful. They were outstanding. But that pressure, that critique was too much. Now we do the same thing to ourselves. It's not just to our children or to our neighbors or to those who report to us at work. We tend to have either too good a view of ourselves at times or too small a view of ourselves, right? And you go back and forth. We're either we're either under or over inflated. We, we tend to think that we're either crushing it or we're simply being crushed by it. But we live in a culture of evaluation. This past week, I was reminded of a pastor. Uh, There's an article that I read. A pastor in New York City was planting a church, and as he was preparing for the first official service, he got very anxious for the sermon. And in this article, he confessed that he took nine pills that morning before the the service began. Three Xanax, three Zoloft, and three Propraninol. That's triple the amount his doctor had prescribed for him, for his anxiety. And when asked the reason why, he said this, I knew the seats were gonna be packed with high-profile investment bankers, Broadway actresses, university professors, runway models, you name it. To me, everybody in the room was impressive and I needed to impress them. I needed their approval, affirmation, and acceptance. I needed them to love me, and I mean love me. I needed to floor them with a level of oratory excellence that had never been experienced before, and I convinced myself the more pills I took, the more likely this was to happen. He also confessed that he took 50 to 60 hours that week working on his sermon. Just so you know, Uh, In the classroom, uh, professors of preaching will say 15 to 20 hours is good. Uh, I don't know many preachers who spend that much time. Six to 10 is probably more accurate in terms of time with butt in seat. He spent 50 to 60 hours, almost killed himself that week on top of everything else that he was doing. Why did he do this? Well, it's so easy for him. It's so easy for all of us, you and me, to have our identity shaped And evaluated by the opinions of others around us. Isn't that true? Maybe not only their opinions, but our opinions. Do I measure up? Do I live a life beyond rejection? Because that would be too painful. Well, in our passage today, Paul and others are being evaluated by the Corinthian Christians. And we're gonna see Paul's instruction on the wrong way to evaluate and the godly way to evaluate. In the first point, I want us to explore how the reader, how we should not evaluate Paul or any other leader or apostle. And the second point, uh, how we ought to evaluate leaders in the church, because this really is about leaders in the church primarily. That's that's the first point of the passage. But of course, we'll apply it in many other ways. What do you expect of your leaders? What do you expect of me? What do you expect of the other pastors? Or what do you expect of your leaders in the marketplace? That's what I want you to be thinking about as we talk about evaluation. So the first point this morning is let's look about how we evaluate our evaluations. How do you evaluate your evaluations? Because you're always evaluating and you're always being evaluated. If you want to look at your worship guide, this is mainly going to be verses one through nine and then verses 18 through 23. So that is the first three paragraphs on your worship guide. So last week, Ben unpacked for us Paul's attack on the wisdom of this world and contrasted it with knowing Christ and true wisdom, wisdom of God, the wisdom of the cross. You see, in in Corinth, the wisdom of the world would judge leaders and people by their status, by their learning, by their giftedness, by their rhetoric, by their presence as a preacher or a speaker. But Paul brings into view for them, what is true wisdom? What is true greatness? And he turned it upside down last week. He said, the cross is true greatness. And this week he wants to apply that principle of greatness and wisdom to Christian leaders and how people in the congregation evaluate their Christian leaders and themselves. So last week he said, Christian wisdom precludes all human boasting. It gets rid of all human boasting. And this week he says, including boasting in your leaders. It gets rid of all wisdom, including boasting in your leaders. And so in our passage here, in the first few verses, Paul uses irony. If you look at the first three verses, he says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. The reason that's Ironic is because no doubt commentators believe that the Corinthians had coined themselves as a very spiritual bunch of people. They had said, we have arrived. We are so gifted. We are, when you, when you look up spirituality in a Bible dictionary, it says Corinth. That's what they're saying about themselves. But Paul is in a sense, uh, undercutting them, being subversive and saying, you, you, you have so overestimated yourselves You think that you're mature. I can't even feed you solid food. Now, I think that there is a lesson for us here. Some of us think that we're so mature that we're ready to move on from the basic foundational truths of the gospel, like Christ saves and like the cross is the wisdom of the Christian. We're so ready to move on. But Paul says it would be dangerous for him to let the Corinthians move on because it would feed their puffed upness it would feed their sense of inflated self. And so Paul says, let me break it down for you, take you back to the foundation. So that's what Paul's doing in the first three verses. Now it's also ironic uh, because in in verse four, he says, listen, not only do you think you're spiritual, uh, you think that by following Paul or by following Apollos, that you're proving that you're spiritual. In other words, they think we have such great discernment. We know which one of these leaders is actually the better leader. We we know which one of these leaders is actually the best. We know which one of these leaders, when we attach ourselves to them, it will elevate our status as spiritual Christians. And Paul says, when you say that, you're being merely human. Now he's not calling into question their salvation. He's simply saying You're denying the very thing that God is doing in you. God is showing you true wisdom and you're rejecting it and you're embracing the wisdom of this age. So then Paul engages them on this this point, okay? So look at verse five. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. So in essence, he's asking, what do you think we are? What do you think we are? And and he says something shocking to the Corinthian sensibility. He says, we're your servants. Why is that shocking to their sensibility? Because they don't deserve servants. They deserve superstars because they're in Corinth. We don't have servants for pastors, for preachers, for leaders. We get the best. We're we're superstars. That's what they really wanted. And Paul won't let them do that. He says, what then is Apollos? Well, he's a servant. What is Paul? He is a servant. And then he says this, he says, we are your servants, not your superstars, because God has assigned to you servants when you wanted superstars. That's right. You believe through servants, lowly people. So he's saying the only reason you believe is because God sent you servants. And it's almost like he knew what they were gonna do after that, right? He knew what they were gonna do. they, They were gonna say, okay, well, which one is the higher ranking servant then? But he cuts them off at that pass too. Look at this. He says, verse six, "'I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. "'So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, "'but only God who gives the growth. "'He who plants and he who waters are one, "'and each will receive his wages according to his labor.'" So you see, he neutralizes their ability to say, okay, then who has the highest status as a servant? That one's our servant. He makes this relativizing comment and he says, God's the only one who you really should care about. And then he says, besides, we're on the same team. And he gives a unifying comment. So a relativizing comment and saying, God's the only one that matters. And a unifying comment when he says, we all have the same purpose anyway. We are one. Now, listen, I already kind of mentioned this. We do this in our own way today with with preachers right? We we don't really have a hero culture anymore. Dick Kyes has a great book called True Heroism. He's a Labrie guy, if you're familiar with Labrie. And he talks about the fact that we don't have true heroes anymore. We have celebrities. And so it's no wonder, not all, but many of the pastors who are celebrities, they don't want to be celebrities. They don't want us to make them celebrities, but nevertheless, we have. Now, some do want to be celebrities and that's a problem. Some started off not wanting to be celebrities and now they want to be, or they think they ought to be. And I've read in many places that if it's true that in the 60s, pastors became known as one of the other helping professions, right? Because psychology began to have its heyday and sin was no longer a thing. So pastors were like mental health counselors, basically. And, and if that gave way to the 80s and 90s with pastor as CEO right? Megachurch movement. And that was another way that we wanted our celebrities and our church leaders. And now it's probably given way, I've heard, to something like pastor a celebrity communicator. Podcasts have made this possible. Now they're not all bad. I listen to preachers and absolutely there are preachers who are better than any of us here at New City. That's not my point. My point is, will you grab onto them and boast in them? Are you making them the standard are you saying, well, I follow this person or I follow this person? And Paul would say to us, don't do that. Don't you know that God's the only one that gives the growth? And so he's calling the Corinthians to evaluate the way that they're evaluating. If you look at verses 18 through 23, he's saying, it's not just how you're evaluating us, it's also how you evaluate yourself. You need to evaluate the way you're evaluating yourself, because that's actually where this starts. You see, if you could evaluate others based on your own standards, you probably have a pretty high estimation of yourself because your standards have become, well, your standard. So Luke in verse 18 through 23, he says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And then jump to 21. So let no one boast in men. So that would be in other people, which you already said, but also in yourself. And basically, in verses 18 through 23, can be summed up in there is false wisdom in self praise. Self praise is false wisdom. It seems so wise in the moment. You seem to have a great grasp on things, but Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If you think you're wise in this age, become a fool that you may become wise. Now, why would we want to boast in men? Why would we want to do that? Well, some of us want to boast in other people because it makes us feel important. We've given up on ourselves being important at some point, at some level, but the other people we see, they're important. And if I can attach myself to them, if I can go to that person's church, then maybe I'll be important too. If my kids move to a city and they end up going to that person's church and I can tell other people they go to that person's church, then somehow that makes me look better as a parent, we like to attach ourselves to powerful and successful people. I think that's one reason why we wanna boast in others, boast in other men or women. Some of us wanna be other people's boasts, don't we? Some of us wanna be that person who is boasted in. Right, we, it's not that, we, we don't just want it, we need it. We need to be outstanding. We need to be others' number one pick but it's not really for them, it's for us. It's how we get our needs met when we're outstanding and boasted in by others. But Paul says, the very thing that you long for in either scenario, either in finding that person to boast in or being that person who's boasted in, Corinthians, new city. The very thing you long for when you do that, you already have. The very thing you long for in this way is to be accepted, is to be loved and experienced, to not be overlooked, to not be forgotten. That's what you really want. And he says in verse 23, you are Christ's. And before that, he says, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death of the present or the future, all are yours. He's saying, in Christ, you have everything that you long for. You don't need to be boasted in, and you don't need to find other people to attach yourself and boast in them. Because you know what a boast is, right? A boast is your confidence. It's your very confidence. It's that thing that you say, well, at least I didn't lose. At least I didn't experience. At least I haven't yet done. At least I have. Whatever that thing, whatever that fill in the blank is, that's a boast. That's a boast. The thing about pride, which is underlying this whole passage is that as C.S. Lewis said, pride itself is really comparative. It's not being prideful in what you've accomplished. And the reason we know that, excuse me, the reason we know that is because if you're really proud about what you've accomplished, as soon as you find yourself in the company of a person who's accomplished more than you, you no longer have pride in that you have contempt. See, pride is comparative always. That's the only way it lives. Because it's your boast. And as soon as you find a boast that's better than yours, you're filled with contempt for yourself and for that person. I think the way that I was thinking about this, talking with some other people this week, I think there are three categories I wanna run through quickly in our day and age that play this role of a boast. I've already mentioned church leaders in their own way, but I wanna expand it a little bit. I think uh, we have found... Three new things, gurus, Google, and guides, okay? So I just want to run through them quickly. First of all, gurus, we love gurus. We want gurus. That's another way of saying we want men and women to boast in. You know, it's a guru if everything they say is gospel. You know, it's a guru if once you hear their take on something, that it's solidified. And every other argument against it, well, so-and-so said this, that's a guru, for you if, if if that person in whatever area of your life can't be contradicted they might be a guru we go to we go to bat to defend them or if it's ourselves we think we're a guru right we think did a meeting actually happen if that person wasn't in the room they might be a guru or you might be treating them like a guru these are the types of leaders that you like to boast in people that seem to have all the answers about everything. We've made them gurus. We've made them celebrities. And Paul is saying that's wisdom of the world. The other thing we've done is if it's not other people, we've made ourselves the authority and then Google becomes our instrument Right? This is very individualistic in our culture. This is when the individual becomes the authority, the standard, the judge of all things. It's like when Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone thinks he's wise, well, these people think they're wise and they think, if you give me Google, I can figure anything out. They become the standard and then judge of all things. The problem is, is this research typically consists of me and you typing something in Google, finding the very first thing on the first page that confirms the view we already held and saying, jackpot, right? I got it, figured it out. There's a quote in an article that Ben passed on to me this week that points out this relevance in the church when we have Google and us as our authority. So it's me and Google. The quote says, Younger generations have grown up and live in a context of overwhelming information and competing gatekeepers. As a result, they've learned to function more as independent theological and religious consumers, assembling their own faith through picking and choosing among the authorities that they like. Alternatively, they introduce different criteria for assessing truthfulness, criteria more amenable to minds that aren't trained in the theological method or education. And then they privilege their own sense of what is most loving. And that becomes their assessment, the way they evaluate. So whether it's a guru, someone else, I want, I want to fall in line with someone else, or I'm always the one who can evaluate. What we need to move toward, which Paul is inviting us to, is something more along the lines of guides. There is a word, there's a Greek word in a section of chapter 3 that we didn't put in here today. And that is a pedagogue or a guide. And Paul says that we, in a positive sense, have many guides in the church. So what's a guide? Educators call this method maybe a guide on the side as opposed to only a sage on the stage in education, right? What does it mean to have a guide on the side? Well, it's a pedagogue. This is a wise person who's given responsibility to be consulted, right? To to be imitated, right? You listen to a guide, you respect a guide, you consult a guide, you imitate a guide because a guide is worthy of emulation. But the purpose of the guide is not the guide themselves. The purpose of the guide is to lead you to the thing you're being guided to. In this case, it's Christian maturity and it's holiness, right? The, The point of the guide isn't the guide, it's where the guide is taking you. So that's when you know that you have found a leader as Paul is describing. Someone who wants not to say, look at me, but let me lead you to look at Christ. Let me lead you to maturity. Come with me as I am moving in this direction. And so maybe a way that we need to reevaluate our way of evaluating is thinking of do I have a guru or do I want to be a guru? Is it just me and Google all the time? Or do I have guides who I'm walking with, who I'm following? And am I a guide for other people behind me? I think that's what Paul longs for for the Corinthians. I once heard this. A Christian woman, a couple of generations ago, about a generation ago, was asked in an interview for a major Christian publication, who is the most godly person that you know? And she said, oh, we couldn't possibly know who that was. We couldn't possibly know who that was. That person is probably in a village somewhere in the majority world. No one knows her name. No one will ever know her name. And she's living faithfully, following Christ day in and day out. You see, she knew where the question was going, but she wanted to undercut the very method of evaluating. How do we think about evaluating? And she knew it was faithfulness. She knew it was having your eyes locked on Christ, not looking fancy, but being faithful. Not being flashy, but being faithful. That is the method of evaluation. So if Paul first wants the Corinthian readers to know they should evaluate their way of evaluating. He does want to tell them how they should evaluate. So let's move on to that. The second and final point is, he wants the Corinthians and us to embrace God's evaluation. And this is in chapter four, verses one through seven, which are the the last two paragraphs on your worship guide. So in verse one, Well, actually, first, let me say this. Let me say this. It's popular in our current age for people to think that judging or evaluating in every form is wrong. And uh, you'll hear people say, don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? You can't judge me. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that judging people is bad, that evaluating is bad. He wants us to evaluate rightly. Paul is concerned that the Corinthians are judging the apostles and each other according to the correct standards. Okay. We all know how important it is to have correct standards. I heard a story this week of a little girl who went to her parents and said, I am over six feet tall. Can you believe it? And the parents said, six feet? Are you sure you're over six feet tall? And and she was adamant that she was over six feet tall. So the mother was wise and said, can you show me what you were measuring yourself with? So she grabs her hand and she takes her and she gets out a ruler and puts it down on the ground and says, see, here's the six, and I'm above the six. It was six inches. She was meaning to say, I'm over six inches tall, but she was saying, I'm over six feet tall. Right? So you know, metrics matter. So that's Paul's point is, are we using the right metrics in evaluating? So what are Paul's metrics? He tells in verse one of chapter four, second, parag- uh, second to last paragraph, he says, This is how one should regard us. That's evaluating language, isn't it? This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I've already pointed out they wanted superstars, not servants. But what does this word steward mean? It's actually a very important point. Uh, Stewards were a very meaningful office. We might call them estate managers today or something like that. This is an office that normally included responsibility for overseeing a household budget, for purchasing things for the household, keeping accounts, resource allocation of all types, collection of debts, general running of the establishment. But the key was is that a steward only does all of these things as instructed within the guidelines agreed by the employer or the head of the house. That's what a steward does. And Paul says, "We're just stewards." That's what we are. We're stewards of the mysteries of God. We do whatever God tells us to do. So stewards and servants, he says, are called to be faithful. Look at this, verse two. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So that is the measure of what Paul is saying. Christian, do you wanna know if you are successful? The measure is, are you being faithful in the small things that God has called you to? Are you being faithful in the very mundane and ordinary things of life? That is the way in which we evaluate. And the the tricky thing is, is those most of the time are things that no one else sees. And that's challenging for us, isn't it? And sometimes the things that people do see don't tell the whole story. In verse three, Paul in verse three and four gives us these strange, it's very strange. He says, Look at verse three with me. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. What is he saying? Very quickly, the main point that Paul is teaching us here is that human judgment remains fallible and inadequate always. It matters, but it's fallible and it's always inadequate, whether it's positive evaluation or negative evaluation. Either way, it's not always the whole story. So whether it be Paul's own evaluation or another human agent's evaluation of himself, Paul trustfully leaves everything in the hands of God, who alone has competency to judge in an absolute and irrevocable sense. Whatever God says, that is what's true about you. It doesn't really matter what you think about it doesn't matter what other people think about it. So neither other people's verdicts nor your own self-awareness can penetrate your unconscious motives. Everything, even your unconscious motives are only left for God to judge. Isn't that scary? Isn't that scary? He says, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Verse five, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring light to the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Paul is saying that the Corinthians were presumptuous in their judgment because verse six, they were puffed up in favor of one against another. And puffed up is actually a medical term. It's not used very many times. It's used as a medical term in many ways. It's like an organ that is distended. It's filled with too much air. We still use this, right? We, we say their head is full of hot air or they're too big for their britches or whatever idiom we have. The point is, is that they look real puffed up, but it's hollow inside and it can be popped and therefore it's fragile. Just like that organ that's distended with too much air. It's too big. It may seem hard on the outside when you press on it, but it's hollow on the inside. And Paul is saying, don't be presumptuous. And he asks three penetrating questions to all of us. If you want to know if you're puffed up, let's read these three penetrating questions in verse seven. He says, for who sees anything different in you? His question you could say is, so what if you're outstanding? What does that even mean? If you stand out, what does that mean? And then that leads to the next question. For what do you have that you do not receive? Anything that would make you stand out, you received that. So why are you boasting in it? Which is what he says next. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so Paul is pointing to their presumptuousness. But you and I boast all the time about things that we received. You and I are puffed up all the time. What is that in us that needs to be that way? What is it it in us that makes us want to boast Why are we drawn to boast in things that we receive? What are we longing for? I think we're longing for acceptance. We're longing for someone to look at us and say, you are known and you are good. We're looking for someone to say, you are known and you are lovable. We're looking for someone to look at us and say, you are known and you are valuable. You are known and you are understood. You are known and you are safe. You are known and you are going to be okay. I will protect you. You are known and you matter. This is what we want. And if we have to, we'll overinflate ourselves in order to put on the air to others and to ourselves that these things are true of us. Yet we know they're not. Verse 5 and 6. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring light to the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. If you and I are honest, as I mentioned, that's terrifying. The psalmists tell us we don't know everything in our unconscious. We don't know all of the darkness, but yet we're sure that there are ill motivations in there. But when the Lord comes, it's all going to be seen. It's all going to be laid bare, And the very thing we want now is in jeopardy. We want to be accepted. And yet we know when we're truly known in the depth of our hearts, we will be condemned. But why then? In the next sentence, he says, when that happens, look with me, look down, look with me at verse five, second half, God's gonna bring to light all of your motivations. God's gonna bring to light all that's hidden in darkness. Then each one will receive his what? commendation from God. Why doesn't it say condemnation? Isn't that what you're going to deserve to be condemned when it's all laid bare? But that's not what he says. He says you'll receive your commendation. What does that mean? It means you'll be commended, Christian. Those who trust in Christ, you will be commended. But why will you be commended? Because when all your sin is laid bare see what it was that Jesus took on your behalf. And in that moment, you will be justified. In that moment, a great transaction happens. When you put your faith in Christ, your record is removed and you are given Jesus's perfect record. Do you see how this changes everything? Because all of a sudden. You and I don't have to be afraid of the way people evaluate us because we already have received the very applause and commendation we desire. We don't need people to boast in us because Jesus boasts in us. He says, Father, look at my bride, which I've given to you. I commend my bride to you because of the good work that I've done on their behalf. The very applause that you want has already received the applause of nail-scarred hands. That changes everything. That changes everything. Every human being longs to have an evaluation, not based on performance. And when we come to embrace God's evaluation of us, it will change the way we evaluate others and it will change the way we receive evaluations. You don't have to be crushed by rejection. You don't have to be crushed by your own anxiety and fear. In those moments, I'm just as tempted, but we need to look When we feel threatened from condemnation, we need to look to Christ who is our commendation. Christ who commends us to the Father, who shows that we're lovely. That's the hope that we have. And that's what Paul would offer us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now asking that we would rest in the way that you have commended us because of Christ. We receive the acceptance and the longing of justified. We don't have to posture or pose because we've received it in Jesus. So let that free us now. Let that free us to love others as we receive your love. Help us embrace your evaluation of us. Call us to evaluate our method of evaluating others and ourselves this morning as we respond to you who is matchless in grace and mercy. It's true. We cannot hide from you, but in Christ, we are made whole. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.